1: Happy New Year. I'm Clarence Boone and welcome to Bring It On, a multiple award-winning radio broadcast in our 16th year as Indiana's only weekly community radio show, committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting the African American community. Good evening. I'm William Hosea.
0: Retired Army General Lloyd J. Austin III, former commander of US Central Command and a Silver Star recipient from the Iraqi war, may become the first black Secretary of Defense. Austin faces hurdles. For starters, he'll need a congressional waiver to take the job because he has not been out of uniform for the required seven years, a result of rules designed to ensure civilian control of the military.
1: Other potential candidates to to lead the Pentagon that were under consideration included former Defense Department official Michelle Flournoy, former Homeland Security Secretary Jay Johnson, and Senator Tammy Duckworth, an Illinois Democrat and combat veteran. As President Barack Obama's Pentagon policy chief, Michelle Flournoy nurtured a new generation of women in national security who have long pushed for her appointment as the first female defense secretary. Now that the president-elect Joe Biden has passed over Flournoy, those same women are outraged over what they say is a missed opportunity to make history.
0: Also, just when you thought President Trump had finally accepted election defeat, actually, I never did, (laughs) it has been reported that 11 Republican senators and nearly 140 Republican congressional representatives plan to challenge the Electoral College's declaration of Joe Biden as president-elect.
1: But wait, 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 it gets more interesting. President Trump may face a call for impeachment over a taped weekend phone call with a Georgian election chief pressuring him to overturn his election defeat. One of the indicting takeaway phrases was Trump asking Georgia's Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger to find 11,780 votes and help him overturn the election loss.
0: So to help us decipher things we've invited back Indiana University Professor Joseph Hoffman an award-winning scholar and law teacher who holds a Harry Pratter professorship and past recipient of the Law School Gavel Award. Joining us also is Major General Craig Q. Timberlake of the U.S. Marine Corps. Major General Timberlake has enjoyed a highly successful and distinguished career. General Timberlake retired from the Marine Corps in 2018 after 41 years of service. And with that, gentlemen, welcome to
1: Bring It On.
2: Good morning. Good to be back.
0: Awesome.
1: Yes. I, I I wish there was something to talk about today. It's just so boring <laughs> out in the news. Jeez, uh, where do we start? Just when you really? think, I mean, we have, what, 15 days to go, and I, I was I thought I was really being sarcastic when I said, well, every day buckle your seatbelt because we're gonna see new and 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 just bizarre things transfold and sure enough, things are unfolding. Uh, and, it's, and even there was an extraordinary warning by 10 former Pentagon chiefs that sent a rebuke to President Trump and all 10 living former secretaries of defense cautioned him on Sunday against any move to involve the military in pursuing claims of election fraud arguing that it would take the country into a dangerous, unlawful, and unconstitutional territory. And the key phrase for me was unconstitutional territory. And with that, Professor Hoffman, Uh, how bizarre can things get with 15 days to go regarding the military's involvement and such things as martial law, uh, just taking to the streets to quell the the public, or pushing back the inauguration to do a do-over. and and contested states that uh, Trump lost?
3: Well, uh, yeah. So (laughs) let me begin by saying that um, I'm not yet at the point where I'm losing sleep at night over the possibility that the inauguration of Joe Biden won't happen. Um, I'm losing sleep about a lot of other things happening in the country right now, but I'm not losing sleep yet over that. I think we are still far from the point at which anything could happen that would, um, that would actually prevent or delay the inauguration on January 20th. Now that isn't to say that I, 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 I can I imagine scenarios where the inauguration is jeopardized? Uh, the inauguration on January 20th might not happen. I can imagine those scenarios, but I think there's still enough adults in the room who have gone on record to say that this transition of power will occur as it's supposed to occur, that I'm not yet, um, I'm not yet ter- terrified that this is likely to become a problem. The things that are going to happen, a- increasingly likely to happen, are things that will continue to tear apart our, our social framework, our, our society, um, that, that are gonna continue to inflame Uh, people who seem to enjoy being inflamed. I think one of the things that I have found so distressing about the last four or five years in this country, and maybe going back 10 or 15 years before, um, one of the things I've found most distressing is to learn how many of my fellow citizens seem to like being angry, seem to like being mad about things. Um, I, I, I tend to spend a lot of my time um, essentially trying to avoid getting angry um, and, and emotional, but some people seem to like it. I think this is what makes Fox News so popular is that they, they essentially um, feed a kind of almost desire to be inflamed, to be angered. Um, and that's going to get worse over the next couple of weeks. I don't think there's any doubt of that now. Trump is not going to go quietly into the night He is a petulant bully who has had his comeuppance, who has been defeated, and is now terrified about the consequences. Anyone who listened to that tape recognizes the the voice of Donald Trump, a scared former bully who is now terrified about the future. And he's literally begging for help. He is literally begging for help. He, he says at one point, you've got to find these eleven thousand you know seven hundred and eighty eight votes come on, give me a break he's he's terrified and because of that he is gonna go out kicking and screaming and pretending to be brave um, and it's all a pretense um, he's scared to death and that's gonna make this next couple of weeks very ugly
0: we have uh Heard the, word, heard the words treason and treasonous thrown around like loose change over the past few years and, and treason is something that's typically associated with a time of war but now we're hearing sedition talking about an overthrow of, uh, of a government. Um, so General Timberlake can you please give us or clarify the definition of treason and in your opinion is sedition worse than treason
2: well you know i'd like to start with a comparison probably first and and i really materially don't see a lot of difference between treason and sedition i mean either would would uh possibly envision or it would be envisioned that someone is overthrowing the government or someone is going against the will of the people and the will of the government so i don't i think a comparison works for me I think they're one and the same. I personally don't see, uh, I, I think the both words are overhyped. I think they're overused only because I don't see them coming to fruition. I can see people trying to do certain things perhaps, but I don't see an end game for the overthrowing of the will of the people. I don't see an end game for treasonous acts against um, the government or the will of the people.
0: Okay. Uh, And actually, of course, that makes sense, but when you think about people like Louis Gohmert, who's who's saying that the only solution left is violence, Michael Flynn advocating uh, martial law and then using the military to redo the election. So even though it may not come to fruition, do these acts by these individuals, or in some cases, these groups of uh, elected officials. Do those amount to sedition or, or treason? And I'm um, keeping in mind, we're not, they're, they're not associated with uh, aiding and abetting the enemy during time of war.
2: Right. And, and you know, and I probably defer more to the professor as, as a legal definition of, of sedition or treason. But I will say to you, for uh, the representative from Texas that has been recently told again that he has no standing in bringing a lawsuit, uh, Goldmart from from Texas, uh, I think again, it's just blustering. This is his attempt to say, I'm still siding with Donald Trump. Uh, I still believe that Trump has some hope of victory. And, uh, and and this, in my opinion, is him playing to his audience, not today, but his audience tomorrow and down the road. What does it bring him politically for him to take a stance, him being Gohmert, to take mm-hmm. a stance and to side with Trump? What does it look like for him five years from now, 10 years from now? Can he stand up and say, I I rode with Trump, so therefore you need to vote for me again. And I and I believe that's that's his end game. I don't really think he believes, honestly, in his heart of hearts, that this is gonna succeed. But I do believe he's in it for himself. And again, I defer to the professor on on, on treason and sedition and, and the difference, um, because I think that may be a, a legal thing there rather than something for me.
3: Yeah, I, I, I think the general has stated things pretty accurately. I mean, both sedition and treason as defined in federal law require either the use of force or the taking up of arms or, or the waging of war in the case of treason. So treason is, is waging war against the U.S. or adhering to those who do. And um, sedition is the use of force to overthrow the government or to prevent the enforcement of law. Um, Could those definitions be applied to the behavior of certain individuals in recent days? Um, I think the argument can definitely be made. I think that um, law professors like me are gonna write articles about that going into the future. That's really kind of beside the point. And I think the general is exactly right when he says that, I don't think it's gonna come to that. this country has to get past this, or we are in deep, deep trouble. And uh, the adults in the room, and I count our president-elect as certainly one of those, will understand that um, they're walking a very, very fine line, a tightrope, as it were. You want to make it clear to the nation, to ourselves, to the world at large, that this kind of behavior, these kinds of threats, these kinds of dog whistles, these these uh, statements are unacceptable, are inappropriate, are illegal, you want to get that message across. But do you really want to put people on trial in the, you know, in, in, in the sense of a sedition trial, um, and and essentially have weeks and weeks of, um, you know, pitched battles, maybe even battles in the streets over that kind of trial? I think what you do is you, you get you, you try to get the message across in another way. Um, you try to rally the adults in the room, including those on the Republican side of the aisle, to try to make it clear that this behavior is beyond the pale, will not will not happen again um, and you you know you hope that these individuals um, face the judgment of history, which they will. There's no doubt about that.
1: You know uh, as a follow up to that i I like many Americans were for- sort of taken aback when Trump announced one last protest one last rally, not protest rally, but one last rally in air quotes. Um, and then also in that invitation, he writes, it'll be a wild time. And just I just checked my phone and, and sort of a news, breaking news uh, uh, alert went out that now Trump is pushing back on this phone call saying it's all a scam. Again, you know, refusing to accept reality. I mean, this is real-time denial. And then a call several weeks ago, I think it was, I don't know, I'm losing track of days because every day seems like it's getting lengthened. But there was this call to come to D.C. and and show me your support. A, A last final gasp effort to get his base to come and just hoist him up on their shoulders to say he's our... Anointed appointed king, don't deny him uh, his victory. And and my problem with that is is at these rallies you have individuals walking around with automatic rifles. You have the and mentioned this morning even on one of the talk shows is you have uh, police who are sworn to protect ignoring these individuals because I guess the right to carry openly is is a protected right. Are we setting ourselves up for, um, a conflagration of, of just hotheads and, and those who are frustrated. And then in the back of all this, there's COVID looming, which is fueling everyone's angst and anxiety because we still have this pandemic going on and, and all that goes with that. So, so your thoughts gentlemen on how do we diffuse? and I know you mentioned Biden as being one of the adults in the room, boy, his plate is full. And then to being denied access to briefings, I guess they're being restarted now from the Pentagon. But man, is this plate full. And who would like to, to, to offer a perception first on that?
2: You know, I, I really believe that as the professor said, the president elect ran on a platform that I will be a leader for all Americans. And he said, okay, I've been elected, but I am gonna be a president for all Americans. I think he has to continue with that theme. I think as the professor also said, you know, he he can't lead with recriminations because if you do, you will never get that other side to at least consider your opinion, to consider your points, to kind of understand where you're coming from. And if he can't do that, he is gonna have a full plate for sure. But I think he'll have an overflowing plate if he can't bring some from the right a little bit back towards center, because there are some individuals in my mind that have just gone completely off on the right side, and they need to be brought back to the center, and you gotta find some common ground. And so whatever he can use to find the common ground might help him get enough people to come back and look towards center, because I'm one of those that believes that America wants to go back to the center. It might take America a while to get there, and it might stumble a little along its path, but I think America wants to get back towards center. I don't, you know, I, I think the, res,
3: the result of the November election was testimony to that. Joe Biden won the election primarily because enough Americans were tired of the drama, of the anger, of the hatred of the violence of a president like Donald Trump. And unfortunately, the win wasn't as clear-cut as we would have liked, but it was still a win. And that puts the lie to any claim by Donald Trump that, you know, he is the the man of the people. The people are fed up with him. At least the majority are. And I think one of the things that's kind of interesting is, you know, I, obviously i understand the argument that you know the republicans aren't going to compromise so why should democrats compromise you know we've been through this going back to president obama going back uh, you know to to all sorts of past events um and and there's a lot of truth in that 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 you know one side's not going to play by the rules why should the other side but i continue to believe that there is hope that at least sticking to the rules will at some point bring um the the adults in the room around. And we have some evidence of that uh, just in the last few days. There have been an increasing number of prominent Republicans, many more than we've seen at any point during the Trump years, who have broken with Trump's position and have said, this is dangerous. We cannot go down this path of contesting the election in the Senate particularly. And it's not just the obvious people like Romney who are saying that. It's people like Lindsey Graham has essentially come out against Trump's position and said that's not what this is supposed to be about. We're supposed to be there as a ceremonial role to count these votes. Um, you know, let us just stop all the ridiculousness. You know, Toomey of Pennsylvania. I mean, there there's just an increasing number of people who have not broken with Trump in the past, but are willing to do so now. In part because he's getting further and further out on that limb of craziness, of just just out and out craziness. I think the phone call is significant. Whether it leads to any kind of legal action or not is kind of beside the point. Politically, it shows Trump as a weak, sniveling coward who uh, is not a a strong man, right? And that, that emboldens people to stand up to him finally. People who've been bullied and cowed for the last four years are finally starting to stand up and say, yeah, no more. Especially knowing that he's gonna be gone from any real power in two weeks people are now starting to jump off that, that sinking ship. And that's what we need to encourage. As far as what will happen in DC, I think it's a lethally, potentially lethally dangerous scenario to have people marching in the streets with weapons, the Proud Boys, et cetera. I hope and pray that we don't have an equal counter movement by, um, by left-wing protesters with guns. I think that that is what Trump is hoping for. He is hoping that both sides will show up armed and angry and start a battle in the streets of D.C. That's his only pretext for trying to call out the military, trying to use any kind of martial law, etc. So if, if, if the crazies on the right want to march through the streets of D.C. with their cherished guns, let them do it. Let them do it. If they try to Damage federal buildings, take them out, arrest them, put them down. But otherwise, let them march. Let them march. It'll all be over in a couple more days.
0: On that note, uh, Mayor Muriel Bowser issued a request to uh, DC residents to please stay home and don't go out and engage in any counter protests. Smart and, move. Yeah, 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 very smart move. She said, of course, her police force will be standing by.
3: Right. You got to protect the infrastructure. But beyond that, they don't do any harm by marching. No one's going to be harmed by that. Let them, let them get their jollies. Let them think they're doing something significant. And then let them
2: go home. And allow the police to do what police are supposed to do, to maintain or restore law and order. That's what police officers do. So the police officers should be allowed to do that.
3: Right. I want Trump's protesters to be the ones who cross the line of illegality. I don't want it to be people who are who are challenging them. I want them to be the ones because once again, that will put people like Lindsey Graham in in increasingly, you know, Mitch McConnell in an increasingly uncomfortable position. They're not going to want to defend that kind of lawlessness.
1: If you've just joined us, you've just heard Professor Joseph Hoffman from Indiana University. He's an award-winning scholar and law teacher and also retired Major General Craig Q. Timberlake of the United States Marine Corps. Uh, they're weighing in on the recent uh, activities of note from the federal government, uh, namely from our president, and and then the aspirations and the planning that's going forth for the incoming president-elect Joe Biden. Uh, one thing, that we sort of talked about in our introduction to this conversation, there were some, there are some rumblings and calls for impeachment, but then I heard calls for censure. And uh, Professor Hoffman, if you could uh, compare, contrast censure versus impeachment, um, the impact of both, and the probability or effectiveness of both.
3: Well, I think censure makes a lot of sense. It's the move that you make when you want to declare that someone has crossed a line that should never be crossed. It's what you do, you censure them. Even you know, the, the issue with impeachment um, or the issue with pardons or the issue with criminal prosecutions is that they, they, they raise the level of, you know, of anger, hostility, tension in the country. Censure is a move that potentially goes the other direction. A, a move to censure the president for that phone call is something that I could easily imagine a significant number of Republicans backing. Um, that that seems to me to be a sensible move. Um, I don't see the value in another impeachment other than um, to, you know put it one more mark in the history books against Trump, but there's so many at this point, it hardly matters. Um, it's not gonna go anywhere. It's not gonna happen um, that that, that, you know, that the president, I don't think the house even has the votes to impeach at this point. Um, you know, Censure is a good
1: idea. I think that would be a very smart move. Professor Hoffman, along that same line, uh, Vice President Pence just won a legal battle of his own. Having that lawsuit thrown out of court uh, that was filed against him to prevent him from doing his constitutional duty and certifying the electoral, electoral college uh, votes. Um, comment on that, if you will. Define the, the fine line that, that Mike Pence is walking these days.
3: Yeah, so I'm really glad you asked that. You know, Everything we've talked about up until now is largely about the realm of politics, and that's actually not my area of, of expertise. Um, but, but I'm, I'm happy to say a little bit about the law as it relates to what's going to happen on Wednesday the 6th. So um, Wednesday the 6th is the date provided uh, it, you know, by law for counting the, elect, uh, the electors uh, who voted in the Electoral College back in December. And um, a lot of what is being talked about right now around the events that are coming up on, on Wednesday the 6th are the result of of the fact that our law is a little bit um, unclear, uh, ambiguous about some of the specific procedures that are supposed to occur. So we have, let's just start, very basically, what we have is the constitution has a certain provision, it's the 12th amendment, that says what's supposed to happen on, on the 6th of January. The 12th amendment, unfortunately, doesn't really answer the question of what to do if there are contested slates of electors from a given state. So um, the the 12th amendment, the the key language is that, uh, and I quote, the president of the Senate shall uh, shall in the presence of the Senate and House of Representatives open all certificates and the votes shall then be counted. That is all the 12th Amendment says about the counting of electoral votes. The president of the Senate opens the certificates that come from each state, and the votes shall be counted. Um, No further instructions. This once in our past, you know, we're not, this is not the first time we've had a situation where there have been seriously disputed slates of electors. It happened in 1876 In the presidential election between Rutherford B. Hayes and uh, Tilden. The the, the Hayes Tilden election of 1876 came down to three states in the Deep South where there were dueling slates of putative electors. All right. Um, The Republicans, you may recall at that time um, from your American history, were running the Reconstruction of the South. This was just after the Civil War, and we were still in Reconstruction. The South, which was largely ruled by Democrats, um, the South was immensely unhappy about Reconstruction and wanted to get the Feds, get the, get the radical Republicans out of the South. So in the election, um, you know, Hayes was the Republican candidate, and Tilden was the Democratic candidate. Um, and um, uh, Tilden uh, claimed that um, he had won these uh, three states in the South, um, and um, and it was contested. It went to the uh, Electoral College. Um, Hayes, Hay- Tilden actually was one vote short of what he needed to win the Electoral College without the three Southern states in question. They were Louisiana, South Carolina, and Florida. He was already one state, one vote shy of what he needed to win in the Electoral College. But the return showed that, uh, um, you know, both parties had a claim to victory in those three states. So it went to Congress without knowing what would happen, what would happen to those votes. And nothing in the Constitution said anything about how the vote shall be counted when there were disputed slates. What happened at that point was a kind of ugly part of American history and probably very significant to the people listening to this program. Uh, What happened was a very ugly political compromise in which uh, in the back room, um, Hayes supporters, agreed, I'm uh, sorry, Tilden supporters agreed to let Hayes have the electoral votes in those three disputed Southern states and for the Republicans to win if the Republicans would commit to ending Reconstruction in the South, to pulling out and leaving the South to the Democrats. The Democrats in return promised in the back room that they would respect the rights of the freed Blacks in the South and um, would, would apply the equal protection of the law to them. Of course, what happened after Hayes became president, Reconstruction ended, the feds pulled out, and the Democrats in the South reneged on their promise and started to enforce Jim Crow. So this was a very ugly part of American history, this Compromise of 1876. As a result of that compromise, Congress 10 years later passed a statute that now governs how the Electoral College Operates and how the votes are counted. And it is that statute that specifically provides the procedures that are going to be followed on January 6th. The procedures give Vice President Pence no substantive role. All right. The statute gives him no substantive role. The statute fundamentally comes down to saying that. If there's a dispute in the slates of electors, and if both houses of Congress can't agree on which slate should be counted, it's the one certified by the governor of the state that controls. That's what the statute provides. Gives no role to to Vice President Pence at all, other than a ceremonial one. The lawsuit was an attempt to get that statute thrown out on constitutional grounds, claiming that it was somehow inconsistent with the language of the 12th Amendment. That's nonsense. Frankly, that's nonsense. No lawyer should be making that claim with a straight face. There's nothing in the 12th Amendment that is violated by the statute that Congress passed in the wake of the Hayes Tilden disputed election of 1876. But that's where we are. And that's why even a Trump appointed federal judge quickly threw out that lawsuit. He threw it out on standing, but on the merits, the lawsuit is absurd.
0: Even Mike Pence came
3: out against that lawsuit. Yes, of course he did. It's nonsense. The framers could not possibly, could not possibly have thought that the 12th Amendment, which which passed back in that era, was designed to give the vice president the power to decide which electors to count. That's absolute, utter nonsense, especially when the vice president will often be one of the people who's running in the election right? That's just utter nonsense. There's no way that the framers meant the 12th Amendment to say that.
0: I want to go back to uh, what we opened up with uh, and talk about General Lloyd Austin a little bit. Um, General Timberlake, did you know him at all? I,
2: I personally do not know him. Uh, I, obviously, I know of him and, and now America does and what Americans that don't know of him will probably get to know him real soon.
0: So, There's some talk floating around that uh, Republicans are going to try and block his nomination uh, uh, to be Secretary of Defense. But, of course, um, General Mattis, you know, same situation, uh, but he was approved, no problem. And, you know, by the way, it just occurred to me, we both served under General Mattis at the same time. But what what is your sense about General Austin um, winning the approval of the Senate to that seat to that position?
2: Well, you know, I I think first off, just um, a little bit of history there, and and um, so so we got to look at uh, we we've only had a a Secretary of Defense since the 19 the National Security Act of 1947 that that established the position of Secretary of Defense. Uh, James Forrestal, who had been the Secretary of the Navy, who, by the way, didn't think we should have a Secretary of Defense, became the first Secretary of Defense. But either way, the President in my mind, the President-elect at this point, but the President in my mind has should have the right to pick an individual that he or she is most comfortable with. Now, there is a provision that says you have to be seven years removed, it was 10 years, seven years removed from active duty service. So if Lloyd Austin was a reservist, we wouldn't be having this conversation based on the fact that he's not been seven years removed from active duty service. But because he's a, he was an active duty officer, just like Mattis, then we have to have the conversation. But people forget very quickly that General Mattis wasn't overwhelmingly given the waiver. As a matter of fact, I think the vote was, the House vote was 268 to 151 on, on General Mattis. So everybody didn't agree that Mattis should be there. I personally felt that Mattis should be, and I assure you that I feel the same thing with General Austin. And when we look at his background, uh, I believe that he is um, well experienced for the position. I think the fact that he has a personal relationship as well as a personal a professional relationship with, Biden, with President-elect Biden goes a long way, and it should be that way. Uh, for someone to suggest that he is not qualified because he either has not been retired seven years or anything else is buffoonery. Because if you look at Jim Madison, what qualified Jim Mattis, you could lay the bios, the military bios side by side, and what you're going to find is they're pretty daggone similar. Both have led in combat. Both have been personally decorated in combat. Both of them, so the last job on active duty was uh, central command. Okay, so to me, they're, I won't say one in the same because obviously they're different men, but they have the same amount of experience and the things that I think we need in the Secretary of Defense. So I believe not only is he qualified, but I believe the President elect should be allowed and, and should nominate who he thinks. Um, and of course the Senate will have to approve because that's the way the, it's set up and that's the law. But um, I believe he's well qualified for the position, extremely well qualified for the position.
0: And of course we have a chance to notch out another first. Well, let, right. let, let me let me venture a guess here. You don't think that should take on affirmative action connotations?
2: No, I, I don't want the affirmative action connotations to override uh, or supersede in any way the quality of the individual because if you talk and we won't get into it, but if we're gonna talk the affirmative action piece, the first part is is the man qualified and he is eminently qualified. Everything else in my mind, pretty much is secondary. Yeah.
0: Clarence.
1: Uh, you know, this is is refreshing to have this type of conversation based on the merits of individuals who consume uh, roles of leadership. Because I, I sort of compare that to what's going on now or what's gone on over the last year or so where people are thrust into positions just because uh, they were once buddies or golf buddies with Donald Trump or donated to his campaign or uh, he owes them a favor or whatever. But you know, what a refreshing change up to, to what has gone on over the last four years. Isn't there, are, are there guidelines when making such appointments to such key critical posts I think of the post office um, and all the the problems that we had leading up with the election. Professor Hoffman, are there constitutional guidelines that at least encourage the president to do his his or her due diligence and checking the background on individuals to make sure that they're capable, competent, and uh, can can perform the the duties asked of them? Well,
3: for for high level positions, the primary control on, presidential cronyism or corruption is the Senate's power to advise and consent. Um, And if you look at the Federalist Papers, for example, the the advise and consent role of the Senate is described in in almost precisely those terms. It's to to basically uh, both encourage and if necessary, uh, encourage a president to do the right thing and if necessary block the president from doing the wrong thing and choosing um, unqualified cronies. you know it's unfortunate that two things have happened in the last four years that have undermined that Senate role. One is that um, Republicans in the Senate have largely rolled over to President Trump and allowed him to do whatever the hell he wants to do because they're they've been afraid to challenge him politically. The other thing that's happened is that uh, on on the occasions when it was clear that the Senate was going to throw up a, a roadblock to a um, a nomination requiring advice and consent. Um, President Trump has simply decided, I'll just, I'll just choose an acting, and the the power to choose an acting, um, a person uh, for the acting role, um, is something that's necessary. I mean, you have to be able to choose an acting person while waiting for confirmation of a permanent appointment. But it was never ever designed or even thought that this could become something. Um, Chronic that basically a president would just say, "Well, screw it. I'm not going to submit people to the Senate for confirmation because they won't get confirmed. So I'll just keep appointing acting people, and I'll just keep doing it, and I'll just keep doing it." And for Trump, it's become the primary way that he gets people in those positions is by by putting them in as acting. Now we've had some pushback from the courts recently, um, especially in the context of um, immigration, saying that some of the actions taken by uh, the Immigration service are in fact illegal because they were directed by someone who should no longer have been allowed to serve as an acting director um, but that's that's really undermined the uh the Senate's advice and consent role, which is the primary way to keep qualified uh people in these top level uh
1: positions uh, you know I not lost on me over the weekend uh, the new Congress was sworn in, yeah. Yes. And with that, uh, uh, Nancy Pelosi was up for <laughs> what should have been a simple reelection of her own, but it, I guess it was a squeaker. I didn't, I didn't get the final vote count on that, but um, wow, a, that it, Well,
3: it, it was a squeaker. In part because the Democrats have, you know, so few people now. Um, the election, you know, the Democrats had to pretty much all stick together, or they wouldn't have had enough votes to put her in as
1: the Speaker of the House. Um, Wow, she is she is championed so much and has weathered so much during her tenure. Um, do you think this will be her last go around as a speaker? No. Uh, and uh, General Temporary, you, you had a comment on that. I, I didn't
2: no, catch. I I, that. I I thought that uh, that and the professor again will will come in and clear the, clean this up for us. But I thought this is her fourth time, uh, and and she's limited as four terms as a speaker. Four terms. Okay. I thought, um, professor, I defer.
3: Obviously, I, I think she's made it pretty clear that that she does not expect to yeah. to do this again.
1: But and, and sort of as a, a follow up to that, I can see both she and McConnell going into uh, garage cleaning uh, businesses <laughs> after their tenures. Uh, some impressionistic art artists have gone around and, and and shown their displeasure on their garage and on their front door um, over the weekend. I you know. I I I denounce that, but then again, it's sort of interesting that the engagement of the American polit of uh, of uh, politic uh, the, the engagement of American people in politics is sort of refreshing and that we're not sitting idly by and let letting things happen. People people are voicing their discontent and they're taking to the streets, they're registering people to vote in mass numbers, uh they're going out to vote, and if the uh if the the pre-election day vote tally in Georgia is any indication this Tuesday should be phenomenal. And I'm hoping, and I'm not, well, maybe I'm gonna ask you all to sort of give your a prediction on the outcome in the Georgia election uh, for this coming Tuesday. And we will of course hold you to your word and, and we will publish your name in the paper. Yes, I will. And so uh, we'll start with Professor Hoffman. <laughs> your, oh, your, your prediction, your prediction <laughs> for Tuesday on, on, on the great effort of both Stacey uh, Adams uh, Abrams, rather, and and others who have rallied the politic to get out and vote, what do you think is going to happen?
3: Okay, I'll predict that the turnout will be by far the largest ever for a runoff in Georgia. Uh, that that that's my prediction. Um, I, I, I you know I hesitate to predict the outcome of Supreme Court decisions, which is something I know a fair amount about. Um, I would really um, not want to go out on a limb and predict the outcome of this one, especially since you know I, I'm so emotionally invested in it. Um, I think that the only chance, really, that we have of um, having the next two years make progress on various fronts um, is if the Democrats win both of those Senate runoff right, elections. Right. And and so I, I'm so I'm so invested in hoping for that to happen um, and avoiding the kind of ugly gridlock that will occur otherwise that, uh, yeah, I I don't want to go out on a limb and predict it. I mean, most of the the pundits are saying that the Republicans still have the upper hand in in at least one of the elections, if not both of them. So it'll be an an upset.
0: General Timberlake is going to not answer that question even better than Professor Hoffman did. Am I right?
2: No, well, maybe. Okay, so.
3: (laughs) Okay, let's hear it.
2: No, you know, (laughs) What I agree with the professor on, for sure, no daylight at all between our positions that if in fact the the Democrats don't win both seats, then what you will have is two years of trying to wait out the president-elect, okay? So the president-elect will come in office and he'll have a million great ideas and things he wants to do. But if he doesn't have control of the Senate, the Democrats don't have control of the Senate, then what you'll find is, individuals will say, hey, wait a minute, if we can make it to the halfway mark, then we can wait them out because it's my opinion and my experience has been anytime that you come into a position with a definitive term and for the president that's either four years or eight years, however you look at it, then individuals get to a certain point and they wait you out. We see that in in, in other places. We see um, not only elect officials, but anybody that again, that has a definitive term, someone will say, hey, if I can get to the two year mark, I can wait this individual out, and I think that's what will happen with Biden. I, I think that gridlock will occur. I think uh, the Republicans will wait for the the midterm elections, and they will pour all their efforts into styming the president's approach at every opportunity. And then, when the midterm elections come, then they put all their efforts into trying to take back control if they don't already have. Or to retain control of, so for the next two years they can do the same thing, and then essentially try to reduce him or try to ensure that President Biden is a one-term president.
1: That's interesting, so especially me,
2: when I ask me, if you ask me who I think will win. Um, the the people that I think will win probably a little bit different than who I'm hoping will win, and I too am hoping that we're able to move forward. And I think the way we can really, no kidding, move forward is if you have a democratically controlled Congress.
1: Well, so. you, you you heard it here first, uh, folks. Um, both of our guests have, have called it. And uh, we'll see if they're right on uh, Wednesday morning. Because, of course, we'll know the outcome on Wednesday morning, right? <laughs> so course, yeah. it's, anyway, <laughs> anyway,
3: um, can, can, one thing can, can I also point out the Um, continuing um, almost, it's hard to imagine, um, you know, a president behaving the way Trump has been behaving in the last couple of weeks. But, you know, one more, one more example of that is, um, you know, the way that he has essentially been putting pressure and trying to coerce and threatening the people who run the elections in Georgia, who are mostly Republicans, you know, Georgia's not a Democratic state. It's a Republican state. And that phone call and his threats to the people, uh, like the Secretary of State of Georgia, you know, um, if you really thought those guys had any control over how the votes get counted, I would be looking at those guys right now and thinking they're not going to give Trump's side the benefit of the doubt. I mean, you've you know, you've made enemies of the very people right. that, you know, you, you want to have as friend in the next couple of days. You know,
0: um, about that. I, I,
3: I, I'm sorry, let me just make one thing clear. Though. I, I do Go not ahead. think that the people in Georgia, the secretary of state, the governor, I think they have been adults throughout this. And I, I, I don't want to in any way insinuate that they would bend the rules in either direction. I'm just saying, if you're the president, what the hell are you thinking going after those people?
0: You know that that was not Trump's first phone call to, directly to individuals uh, to turn to overturn the election results. This was the first one that was recorded. Right. And and so who are you going to believe, Trump or your lying ears? Because he's already denying it.
1: You know? and, unless we forget, Governor Kemp has gotten his ears bent several times as well. Um, I, I'm really surprised that Purdue, who can't pass an ethics inquiry is still a candidate for that position. I mean, selling stock in the midst of a pandemic because he had insider information. Uh, I wish they had stayed with that and followed that and really hammered him on that. Of course, need- you gotta debate people uh, to, to give that some some uh, some, some energy. So this is, this is really a case study. And several years from now, Professor Hoffman, you'll be instructing your students to, to study this and offer their opinions on this. One thing as we're sort of rounding uh, the third turn here. We did not talk about other ways that the president can sort of muddy things up as he's leaving. I'm thinking of Iran and the potential crisis situation that is unfolding there. Here we are. It's been a year since um, their top uh, uh, strategic commander, if I want to get this right. But he lost his life, and not saying that we were the cause of, of any assassination effort or anything. But it's been a year since he has sort of been uh, uh, removed from the scene, and they have vowed uh, some type of retribution. What can happen? What what type of incident can happen that can send us into a conflict in these waning days of the Trump presidency?
2: Well, you know, I, I think that, that that is one of the concerns uh, writ large. It, Look, if we think about everything, and, and I'm not even talking about the one year anniversary and that's what we're coming up on, the death of General Suleiman. I'm not not—I'm not concerned, no, I will, but I'll talk about that a little bit in a moment. But all the other things, when is a nation most vulnerable? It's doing like any other organization, doing a transfer of power. And that is the issue right now with some of the antics or the majority of the antics that you see with Donald Trump. If you're on the outside and you're looking into America and you say, when will America be most weak? When will America be at its weakest? And it will be in a transition, even in the best of times, the best of times. It's still that gap in the transition. That's when America is most vulnerable. The fact that you have Iranians saying, hey you killed Soleimani and there'll be no place on earth that you can hide. We will come and get you Donald Trump because he pretty much said he did that, that he ordered it and he did and he did it. And, and, and first off, let me say he did it as a commander in chief and he had the authority to, to do that, not to assassinate, but he has the authority to to go after enemies of the United States, enemies, legitimate enemies of the United States. He has the right to do that. But I'm saying to you that this is just another the anniversary coming up is just another event that as you say clarence how the president can cause mischief and 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 bad things to happen on his exit plan whatever that exit plan is
3: yeah and 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 you know you use the word mischief but and i know you didn't mean it that way but it's not mischief in the sense of ha ha funny things it's not you know like uh you know Uh, leaving practical jokes around the white house this is serious business what he's doing and that's serious externally and it's serious internally once again as we said on a previous program the biggest part of president biden's job i think is to try to rebuild trust in the world and within the united states that we are not crazies we are not nutcases that we know what we're doing and that we're serious people and that's you know I, I I have a sense that people around the world are are sensible enough to recognize that we've been in this bizarre period and that you know things may get back to normal soon. Um, they're watching with with you know disgust some of the antics but um, but yeah I mean this is what someone does when when it's all about them and that's you know we're not here to psychoanalyze the president but a lot of other people have done that pretty effectively. And this is what happens when someone you know, has that kind of, of personality problem.
1: It's almost as if Trump wants to boast about his Osama bin Laden takedown uh, and, and his efforts of boasting and bragging of this uh, general's uh, demise. The other thing is he's ordered troop draw, drawdowns, and that puts us at a disadvantage. Um, You know, given he's got a couple of weeks, we could be put in a precarious situation. Uh, What do you think, General, without enough uh, manpower, woman power on the ground, what can happen?
2: Well, you know, and I I don't know necessarily that we will be harmed as much as our allies will be harmed. Right. Right. When you withdraw and you withdraw hastily, you don't give your allies an opportunity to prepare and that's kind of what he did. I mean, after the election's over, he says immediately, I'm going to, first off, I'm going to farm my secretary of defense, and then I'm going to appoint an acting, and then I'm going to say, start a withdrawal and draw down. And again, it leaves your allies out there. Now, hopefully, as a professor said, we have a lot of strong allies that are out there going, wait a minute, this too shall pass. Okay. And in their minds, they're like, this too shall pass. America will get back to be America if we can just get past this individual. Unfortunately, your enemies don't necessarily think like that. OK, and they don't want this to pass. They want to strike when there's an opportunity. And you see the things that can be done with people like Putin acting, doing whatever he wishes around the world right now, pretty much with impunity, because if we don't check them, who's, gonna, who's going to check them? And then you see the Iranians saying the same thing. Hey, we're going back to enriching. We're going back to doing all those things that we said we were going to do because we're a nation and we can do those things. So again, Clarence, I think you bring up a very good point, uh, the things that he can do on his way out. I think he's going to do all of those. And like the professor said, because that's an individual that is only concerned with himself, he's not concerned with how he leaves America. I think President Obama said it the whole, the, the best summation of the whole time, the four years that we've had this president is he just wasn't interested in the serious business of being the president of the United States. It, he's not interested in that. He's not interested in the serious business. That's why it's so exhausting, another one of Obama's quotes, because this guy, every day you wake up wondering, what the hell is he going to do next? And that's the issue that we have with him on his way out, like we've had for his four years in office.
3: The one thing we, we know about Mr. Putin is that his goal, stated, has been to divide America, to turn us against ourselves, to turn us against each other, to disrupt our social framework, our social, our social uh, bonds. And boy, has he succeeded in that over the last four years. You know, it reminds
1: me, um, uh, Fidel Castro said, I can destroy you from within. Years ago, he made that claim. And um, Putin, who's, who is ex-KGB and, and really played really Trump like a fiddle for the last four years, uh is is playing that game plan and and then the thing that gets me is we've heard nothing really from north korean um north korean ruler it's is he still in power or is he off the scene or is his sister running the situation and that that may be for another show but uh he's been very quiet and i I just don't know what's going on general why don't you call over there and find out what's going on for us and uh report uh... back
2: uh, up until about uh, four years ago, I, I had a private line in, but the new administration came in <laughs> and took my line away. So I kind of,
1: uh... <laughs> well, on that note, I, I think we're we're sort of out of time. And, um, gentlemen, we just have to have you back, especially after a successful inauguration, which will be probably virtual this time around. They're already encouraging people not to turn up for the parade and for the celebrations, which is wise, because he is forward-thinking and putting the pandemic Ahead of a lot of uh, pomp and circumstance right now. But we do want to thank Indiana University Professor Joseph Hoffman, an award winning scholar and law teacher, and retired Major General Craig Q. Timberlake, who may be calling out of retirement the way he's talking here, of the US Marine Corps for helping us to examine a range of issues related to President elect Joe Biden's cabinet picks and outgoing President Donald Trump's latest shenanigans.
0: Bring It On has an open submission policy, so if you have any ideas for this program, we would like to hear them. Please send your emails to our volunteer staff. The address is bringiton at wfhb.org. We want to make sure we share any and everything affecting the African American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. Our email address once again, bringiton
1: at wfhb.org. And along with any ideas for the show, if you have an event or happening that the African-American community should know about, please send that directly to the Bring It On staff. Or if you want additional information about a calendar item that you've heard, contact us at On at wfhb.org.
0: Our show's executive producer is Clarence Boone. Our assistant producer and Zoom conference technician is yours truly. Our consultant and WFHB news department director is Cade Young. Our program engineer Chantal LaFontant. Our original theme music created by Jamil Effiam with additional background tracks by David
1: Baker. For WFHB I am William Hosea. I'm Clarence Boone again. Happy New Year everyone and let's, let's hope and pray it is a happy year this year. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 6 p.m. for another edition of Bring It On right here on your community radio station, WFHB. You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana.